in school, my stick figures weren't recognizable, so I realized there was no, no future in drawing or art or anything like that, but, but I could push a button on a camera. And photography is pretty, it's a pretty fun hobby. There's, there's really a lot more to it than most people realize. And when you think about taking a picture, and I know that today that everybody has a, a smartphone, and so most of us are now, you know, professional photographers, and we have uh, the daughters and granddaughters of these events. We take all these photos, and perhaps you've taken a photo before only to recognize that there was a trash can in the background. And so then you... So then you, you, you step over to the side, right? We call that reframing. You, you step over to the side to, to take it from a different angle. And then you have something you want to focus on. If it's, if it's that daughter or granddaughter, then there's, there's even features on your phone now. You can do the same thing or at least mimic what you can do with an SLR. You can, you can kind of uh, unfocus on the background and blur it out so that all the attention is drawn to the, the person that you're trying to photograph. Three people can photograph the same scene and uh, everything in their picture be true and accurate, and yet all three pictures look very different because how we choose to take that photo, how we choose to stand where we are when we take it, all affects what's actually portrayed. The Gospels are the same way. Even though the Gospels are literary writings, they're, they're four different perspectives of the same event and just like we frame a photo to to take something out of the background we don't necessarily want to show the gospel selected what they would and would not include in their portrayal you can't include everything it's not it's not dishonest it's the nature of writing you cannot include every detail and so you have to select what things you will say and what things you will not say. And so we read four different accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus, and some of them focus in on different details. Some of them emphasize other things, and some of them choose to just to leave out different things that happened. Re remember that we're reading about an event that took several hours to occur, and the description we read it's just a few words long. And so in Matthew's gospel, the passage that we're looking at today, he doesn't record the words of Jesus. Instead, Matthew focuses on all the other people present. Those who mocked and ridiculed Jesus those that the Bible says wag their heads at him in scorn and rejection. And in, in choosing to focus in on the people present and their response to Jesus, Matthew highlights the near universal rejection of Jesus as the Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he went alone. We know that his mother was there. We know that the apostle John was there. There were a few others that had believed in him that came. But Jesus' suffering 
as he died on the cross. He was rejected by the religious leaders. He was rejected by the Romans who knew he was innocent. He was rejected by the crowds that they would pass by one by one. He was even rejected by a thief also being crucified right beside of him on that same day. And yet as Matthew records not a word, we know that Jesus had the power to speak a word and end all the suffering. He had the power to come off of the cross. He had the power to make every mocker mute that day. And yet Jesus, because of his love for us, because he was there to offer himself freely as a sacrifice, he endured the shame and the rejection. Today, as we look at Matthew chapter 27, we pick up in verse 32. I want to ask you, would you join me in standing as we read this together? Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the, with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's pray together. Father, help us to understand what Jesus endured this day that we might accept him. Lord, help us to understand Matthew's account of the constant rejection that Jesus faced as people mocked him and refused to believe that he was the Son of God. Lord, speak to us in this moment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
In the passages that we've been walking through, as we saw Jesus' uh, phony trial before Pilate, a time in which Pilate was clearly fully convinced that Jesus was absolutely innocent. The Bible says Pilate knew that the Jews had only handed him over out of, out of envy. And so Pilate, who knows that Jesus is completely innocent, he doesn't have the character to follow his convictions. And so he rejects Jesus and hands him over to be crucified. Jesus was rejected by the Romans. And the Bible tells us that on this day, as he went out to the cross, he became unable to carry the weight of the beam for his crucifixion. The Romans crucified people in, in different ways. In fact, uh, some of the uh, historical writings from the first century uh, tell about coming upon a town where the Romans had went in and crucified many people, and they, they, got, they just got creative about all the different ways that they did it. And so when we think about the, the way that people were, were crucified, often we have this envision of, of, a, of a cross that is standing but most of the time, there was just a pole. And the beam that would form the cross would be carried by the prisoner. And this was the case with Jesus. As he is carrying the beam that would be attached to that pole to form the cross, Jesus had been scourged, the Bible says. Scourging meant that, that he was brutally beaten with a whip that was designed to rip and tear. And Jesus has already lost who knows how much blood. And he becomes physically too weak to carry this beam. And so in verse 32, it says that the Romans just conscripted a man from the crowd. His name was Simon. He was a man from Cyrene. We don't know anything else about this man. It's very possible that, that he doesn't even know what is happening, but was just traveling into the city. Remember that crucifixions took place outside of the city. If you go today to uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is uh, one site that's possibly the place of the crucifixion, or you go to the, to the, to the uh, other place, uh, where the garden tomb is. Uh, we don't know exactly where Jesus was crucified. Both are, are inside uh, the city of Jerusalem. But in Jesus' day, the city was not that large. Both of those locations were outside of the city. And the Romans had a practice of crucifying people along busy roads. The purpose of crucifixion, one purpose of it, was a public deterrent for crime. They meant for everyone coming in to Jerusalem to see the crucifixion. The point was to make a statement that if you defy the Romans, this is what will happen to you. And Simon of Cyrene, we, we don't know if he had come to celebrate the Passover or if he was just now arriving into town, but he finds himself snatched up by a Roman soldier to carry the cross of Jesus. In verse 33, it says, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, 
he would not drink it. We obviously don't know exactly what this gall was. Most scholars today think it was a poison that was meant to be compassionate, to ease the pain and to shorten the suffering on the cross. But Jesus, he would not have his senses dulled, nor his pain diminished. He suffered in obedience to the Father's plan to the very end. So when he takes this wine and he tastes it and realizes what is in it, the Bible says he would not drink it. In the Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 69, 21 is almost certainly prophesying about this moment. It says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. As Jesus made his way to the cross, nothing was a surprise to him. All the details were known to him in advance, and many of them he revealed to us through the Old Testament prophets so that we might see that Jesus, who knew in advance what he was to suffer, went willingly and obediently on our behalf and in our place. On this day, Jesus was treated by the Romans like any other criminal. And so as he was crucified, the Bible says in verse 35, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. The common practice to divide up the clothing, uh, the person that was responsible for carrying out the crucifixion, uh, as part of their reward was to get to keep the clothing. The Romans uh, typically paraded people to the crusade site or to the to the crucifixion site naked, and would crucify people naked. We don't know if on that day if Jesus was left with some small clothing to cover his private area. We, we don't know if that was the case. But as the Romans began to divide up his clothing, there was uh, a piece, a uh, tunic that was seamlessly woven. And so instead of tearing such a nice piece of clothing, they cast lots to decide who would get to keep it. On that day, Jesus was treated by the Romans just like any other criminal. You and I know that that day three people were crucified. The two would not be known except for the story of Jesus. And one changed all the world for all time. But on that day, he was treated no different by the Romans. They cast... Uh, lots for his clothing just like all the other criminals ironically jesus was charged that day with being a king in verse 37 it says and over his head they put the charge against him which read this is jesus the king of the jews the jews would become very frustrated about this in fact one of the gospels tells us that they went to Pilate and demanded that he take that down but remember this was the charge for which they had brought against him. It was the crime for which they had urged Pilate to find him 
guilty. And in Roman times, the custom was to put a man's crime above him as he was crucified. And so Pilate, uh, no doubt taking a jab at the Jews who forced him to do something he didn't want to do, put above Jesus this sign that said, Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is the irony recorded in the Gospels, is that every mocking, everything that was said about Jesus meant to insult him and to scorn him was actually true. Jesus was the king of the Jews. He's the king of Americans as well. He's the king of us. He's the king of the universe. And the Bible says that one day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus was rejected by the Romans, but he was also rejected by all those who passed by. It says in verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. crucifixion to, to the modern sensibilities is so barbaric and cruel it's, it's hard for me to imagine seeing someone crucified but it's even harder for me to imagine that coming upon someone on the side of the road being crucified that I would be so cold and so calloused as to mock them as they suffered an agonizing and brutal death. But this was the condition of the crowd. They came by and they derided him. In the book of Psalms, the Lord told us this would happen. Psalm 22, 7 says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's an Old Testament passage. And if I had not told you I was reading Psalms, you would have thought it was a quote from another gospel. Such is the accuracy of the Old Testament prophecies that speak about what would happen on that day. As the crowd came by and they mocked him with the things that they said, if we think about the ministry of Jesus, he began preaching to crowds. In Mark chapter 2, the very early part of the gospel, Mark records this about his ministry. It says that when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And listen to what it says about the crowd that was present. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. Many people were brought to Jesus to be healed, but on this occasion, the crowd was so massive that this man's friends could not even get to Jesus. It's an indication in the early ministry of Jesus, there were massive crowds that came to hear him. 
Uh, Mark in the next chapter would tell us this about the crowds. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. What he's describing here is that people were coming from everywhere to hear Jesus. The Bible says when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Listen to what Jesus does in response. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. It was not the disciples overreacting that were worried Jesus might be crushed. It was Jesus who knew everything that realized that it was a possibility that he might be crushed. So great was the crowd. And so Jesus was taken off into a boat to preach from there to keep him from being trampled by the massive crowd. Jesus was no stranger to crowds. His ministry drew a great number of people. And when Jesus on this week was welcomed into Jerusalem, he was welcomed into the city by great crowds. The Bible says in Matthew 21, verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Listen to this. And the crowds, the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But Jesus Though he preached to great crowds, he never trusted them. John says this about the crowds. In John chapter 2, he says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, not on the occasion on which he would be crucified, but at a previous Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Listen to this. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus never trusted the crowds, and rightly so. It was the crowd that yelled to Pilate, crucify him. And now it is the crowd. Then in verse 39 it says, passed by, derided him, wagging their heads. We think about the crowd that rejected Jesus. If we don't learn anything else from that, we need to learn not to follow the crowd. The Bible teaches us this from beginning to end. In Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament, listen to what God commanded them. He says, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. He said, don't fall in with the many. There will always be a crowd. And in Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus preached about salvation and who would attain it, he said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, many. Uh, The Bible is clear about where the crowd is ultimately heading. 
And I can assure you on the authority of God's word, they're going to a place that you don't want to go. If we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to mean going against the crowd and choosing to accept what is unpopular, choosing to do what will make us a minority, and that's becoming a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was also rejected by the religious leaders and even the robbers. The Bible says in verse 41, so also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Then he come down from the cross and we will believe. John, in chapter one of his gospel, describes this. He says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That was the words of the apostle John. The great prophet, John the Baptist, who was called to prepare the way for Jesus. Listen to what the Bible says about this man. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The, the role of John the Baptist was to prepare people to receive Jesus. And had the religious leaders of the day repented and sought the Lord, they would have recognized Jesus instead of rejecting him. The religious leaders mocked Jesus and they denied the testimony of Jesus. They said, he trusts in God, let him trust in himself. For he said, I am the son of God. The religious leaders, when they said that, they said it mocking him, not believing you and I need to come to faith to believe that what Jesus said was true. As the religious leaders mocked Jesus and says, I, for he said, I'm the son of God. It, it reminds me of the temptation in the wilderness. This is what the Bible says about the exchange between Jesus and Satan. It says, and he, that is Satan, took him, that's Jesus, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, listen to his words, if you are the son of God, the same thing the chief priest would say on that day. They would say, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross and then we'll believe. Satan took Jesus up on the pinnacle of the temple and he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan, who knows scripture better than us, he quotes it on this day, twisting it for his effort. But Jesus, Jesus will not be deceived, for he is the author of scripture. And he quotes another passage to Satan. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. On this day, the religious leaders mocked Jesus and they denied his testimony. And even the robbers crucified alongside of him reviled him. 
The Bible says, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now Luke tells us in his gospel that at some point, one of the robbers had a change of heart and put his faith in Christ. But Matthew, Matthew doesn't tell us that part of the story. He simply focused laser tight on the rejection of Jesus. You know why people rejected Jesus? Because they didn't believe. You know why they rejected Jesus? Because they didn't want him. The religious leaders were happy with things just as they were. They weren't interested in surrendering to Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Their reason for rejection, doubt, and no desire to change are the same reasons that people reject Jesus today. As we think about all those who rejected him, that led to his crucifixion. When we realize that in the midst of all of this, that Jesus willingly surrendered to the will of the Father. To the very end, he suffered. Even as he was offered this wine mixed with gall, he wouldn't take it and numb the pain. Jesus, in complete submission to the Father's will, offered himself as a sacrifice. And today we must choose whether we will reject him or whether we will accept him. I expect the vast majority of us present here today are assembled because at least in word we have acknowledged him as Lord. But to say that Jesus is Lord is not enough. He calls us to submit our entire life to him, to follow him as Lord. And so today as we close this service, I urge you to reflect on what the Lord Jesus did for you and to make your decision about what you will do for him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son who was mocked and rejected beaten and crucified and yet he endured it all so that we might be forgiven Lord if there's anyone here today that's never understood or never believed give them the faith today to put their trust in you for it's in your son's name that we pray amen we're going to sing a song of invitation and I want to invite you to respond to the Lord Maybe here today and you say, Pastor, I never really realized what this was about. If you've come to understand today that Jesus died so that you could be forgiven, then it's time. It's time to call on the Lord in prayer and ask for that forgiveness. The Bible says it's a free gift that God offers, but He is waiting. For us to receive it for those of us that have received this gift we accept Jesus not just as Savior but as Lord Lord that means that we submit our whole life to his authority whatever he is like we conform ourselves to it whatever he commands we do 
So I would encourage you today to look at your life and say, God, what do I need to change? God, what do I need to do? And when God reveals it to you, surrender to him. Let's stand together as we sing. Mm-hmm.